we've got to tread a really fine line between positive discrimination and positive action on this on this particular um, line. And so my argument really is now that we've proved that autistic people can come into businesses and do a really good job, what was wrong with our hiring processes that meant they weren't coming in in the first place? So not, so not let's have more autistic people come in. Why were our hiring processes not allowing those people in, in the first place and what do we need to change to those hiring processes so that we don't make that mistake again and where else could we look for where that mistake is being replicated. Hi, I'm David Green and welcome to the first episode of season 20 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. You just heard Dr Nancy Doyle, Chief Research Officer at Genius Within and Co-Director at the Centre for Neurodiversity at Work talking about the challenge of making the hiring process holistically more inclusive and moving away from the approach of just hiring more people who meet certain diversity criteria. Of course, the hiring process is just one element of the employee journey that needs addressing to better meet the needs of neurodiverse individuals, which is the focus of today's discussion. And we talk through a number of other employee experience touch points throughout the episode. Addressing the needs of neurodiverse individuals in the workplace is not just a nice to have or something that leaders feel they ought to do. There is a fundamental legal requirement, the nuances of which are often misunderstood. And there's actually quite a wealth of case law um, where employers have um, you know, broadly made those mistakes and lost in court. You know, people are losing disability discrimination tribunals by not putting in place reasonable adjustments for uh, autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, dyspraxic employees. And that includes employees who didn't have a formal diagnosis when they raised the concern. Yes, yes, I'm enjoying the look on your face, podcast listeners, you cannot see this. David displayed a, a look that I could only interpret as surprise. In our conversation, Nancy shares that 15 to 20% of the population are neurodiverse. So, we are all managing neurodivergent people in our organisations, whether we realise it or not. To help organisations understand the needs of neurodiverse individuals, take action and truly benefit from diversity, Nancy and I discuss throughout the episode, building organisations that are inclusive of the needs of neurodivergent people including the most important touch points in the employee journey that should be addressed. We look at the business benefits of hiring neurodiverse individuals, including examples from organisations such as Microsoft. And we look at the research that Nancy is currently heading up at the Centre for Neurodiversity at Work, including the intersectional exclusion of autistic people across the globe, and autistic people's experience of bringing their authentic selves to work and how practitioners can stay up to date with research in the academic sphere. One of the business benefits is kind of unleashing that performance, isn't it? You know, it's, it's if you've got all of this undisclosed um, neuro, neurodivergence hidden and struggling in day-to-day performance, then your organisation is not working as, at the best it can be. Um, you haven't got people working at the level of their potential. If you get people working at the level of their potential, particularly people that come from backgrounds where they're more likely to have been excluded or ostracised in education or previous work, then generally speaking, what we find is increased levels of loyalty. So therefore, reduced turnover, reduced absenteeism.
Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Nancy Doyle, co-director of the Center for Neurodiversity at Work at Birkbeck and chief research officer at Genius Within to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Nancy, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome to the show. Really fascinating topic as well that I know our listeners will be interested about. Can you provide um, your, our listeners with a brief introduction to, to you and your work? Sure. Um, so I'm Dr. Nancy Doyle, occupational um, psychologist, and um, I've specialised in disability inclusion and in fact social inclusion um, for the majority of my career. I've worked with uh, the DWP on programmes for people who are long term unemployed in prisons um, and on the access to work scheme, which, provide, which is uh, where the DWP advise on reasonable adjustments for um, disabled people going back kind of 25 years. Um, and uh, more recently, over the last sort of 10 years, I've specialised in, in neurodiversity, um, which I will provide a definition of in just one moment. Um, and the, the idea really with um, with my work is is looking at all ways in which um, organisations can be neurodiversity inclusive or neuro inclusive and providing support for neurodivergent individuals throughout their careers from um, being unemployed and transitioning into adulthood right through to senior leaders and, um, and, and senior managers and entrepreneurs who are also neurodivergent in great numbers. Great. Well, you, you've set up the first question absolutely perfect, Nancy. I know it's, a, as, as I said, I know it's a topic that our listeners are increasingly interested in, which is which is good. It's good to see the way mm-hmm. the way we're going on that. Can you share a, a definition of, of neurodiversity that you think is particularly res- will particularly resonate with with organisations? There's lots of different ways to define it, as I'm sure you can imagine. I mean, we, could, we could spend 45 minutes talking about this, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, usually when we talk about neurodiversity, we're referring to um, cognitive invisible differences um, or disabilities, uh, dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, autism, Tourette syndrome, um, dyscalculia and dysgraphia are also known. But th- th- the, uh, neurodiversity isn't really an umbrella topic for uh, title for those things. The idea of neurodiversity is that there is neurological diversity in the human species in the same way that there is diversity in um, in uh, in our height, in our agility, in our athleticism, in our personalities. There's uh, there's a kind of whole is greater than the sum of its parts um, feature to humanity, which is where that we are about a balance of specialists and generalists across a number of different kind of intersecting um, for you know forms. And neurodiversity is just one of those. You know, some of us are jacks of all trades, and we're equally good at, at verbal skills visual reasoning, abstract reasoning, memory and processing speed, and around two-thirds of the of the human population is, is average in all measures of neurocognitive ability, whereas some of us are specialists. Some of us are absolutely excellent at, at, at abstract visual reasoning and, and really, really rubbish at processing speed. And so we end up with these, with these spiky profiles. So neurodiversity means everyone. Um, and those conditions confer neurodivergence or um, kind of diversity within the profile rather than between. So with the conditions that I've named, you've got this 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 specialist rather than generalist approach. Um, around 15 to 20 percent of, of humans have some form of, of, of specialism or, or neurodivergence. Um, and we can widen those barriers to include all kinds of, you know, acquired or transient ways in which you can have a neurodivergent profile. Um, but in the main, those conditions, we're starting to use the umbrella term neuro minorities for those conditions. Neuro 
neurodivergent for individuals who have a neuromonority condition and neurodiversity to refer to the whole species. And that appears to be where the narrative is taking us. But it's a very emergent narrative. Um, it's not led by psychology, that narrative. It's led by communities of, of lived experience. And I'm actually sitting on a working group at the moment for the British Psychological Society, desperately trying to get everyone to catch up to where people's language has moved us. But, you know, like all forms of diversity and inclusion, the language evolution is part of the development of the inclusion process. And so I think people find it confusing. And that's because it is confusing. It's not because you've missed a memo. You know, you haven't like, you know, failed to re read the very important text that tells you all the answers to your questions. It, it feels opaque and, and transient because it is. And I, I think we just have to get used to that, just as we have to get used to updating the language that we use to discuss race um, and LGBTQIA2S+ for example, you know, these things update as our knowledge increases and as our narratives develop. So it's just like that, really. Um, it's no different to any other forms of DNI. And, and it's our job to really educate ourselves in the same way, to, to, to listen, to, to hear how people like to be described and labelled and to respond appropriately when people have a preference. Long answer, short question, sorry. No, no, no. I think it's really good to get that, 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 that content there right up front in the for our discussion and I guess you know just thinking one of the one of the features last year of the um, racial inequality crisis which was obviously really brought to everyone's attention by the Black Lives Matter movement was that you know people like me and others that uh, we, we, we educated ourselves on that a lot more mm -hmm. because of that um, is, is, is one of the things that we can do as HR professionals, and it's mainly HR professionals that, that listen to this podcast, again, educate themselves around the topic of neurodiversity. And I guess one of the complexities is, that, as you said, it's, it's, it's invisible, um, and whereas other forms of diversity are visible and maybe slightly more obvious, at least to the eye. Yeah, I mean, it's, there are other forms of DNI that, that aren't visible, like, like being lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, you know, and a lot of trans people is also not visible. Sometimes it, it is noticeable, sometimes it isn't. So, you know, again, um, it's, it's about, it is about educating ourselves. It is about being aware and, and, and making sure that, um, that our policies and our paperwork and our language is updated appropriately. And, and that can feel like, uh, that can feel like painting the fourth bridge, you know, you, you get to the it's like the lgbtqia2s 2s is a new one on me i learned that this week you know and just as you think you've got to the end it's like oh we're going to go back again and start again but that's you know I, I i just i think that's part of what dni is in hr part of it is actually just staying up to date and being part of those narratives that's part of our job and i actually find it quite interesting and challenging and uh, i think the other thing to note is that there is no because there is no definitive answer you know, that the American Psychiatric Association says this and therefore we now will use that language. You know, that's not going to wash people. People don't like that. So, um, you know, because there is no definitive answer, um, then a useful thing for, for HR professionals to do is to have caveats, have glossy, glossaries of terms, say, you know, we're using this language because um, we're in, you know, we've been listening and we, we understand that this suits most people. However, we, we understand that some people don't like to be called neurodivergent. They prefer to be called neurodiverse or neurodifferent or they prefer to use the label attached to their specific uh, conditions such as autistic or dyslexic so really happy to change our language and address people how they want to be addressed and you know that's no different to um, a woman deciding if she wants to be known as a gay woman a lesbian or a queer woman it's no different
and I guess HR has a, a huge role to play in organisations about getting that that language right. Yeah, and just demystifying it for people, because I think, you know, in, in lots of these sorts of things um, where managers are work, walking on eggshells, um, it, it actually becomes something unspeakable, you know, and it's like, well, no, 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 just get it out there, get it wrong. It's better to get it wrong with the right attitude, be corrected and then move on than to not talk about things because you're so busy about get, worrying about getting things wrong. And that's where HR can provide those sort of style and language guides and, and just keep up to date and make sure people are aware of, of what's current. Yeah. And, and and I think you made a great point there. You know, all forms of diversity and inclusion, you've got to keep up to date, just like yes. you have to keep up to date with technology, just have to keep yes. with, with, with labour regulations. And you know, yeah. D&I is another thing you have to keep up to date with. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so adding the two S to LGBTQIA, you know, it stands for two spirit, um, which is the way um, indigenous people in the USA refer to um, homosexuality. They refer to people as having two spirits, a male spirit and a female spirit, which is a lovely. But, you know, it just shows you that we've we've ignored until this point the intersection of indigenous experience um, of sexuality. And so, you know, it, it, it it's not like oh no we didn't realize that before we've got something wrong we must be terrible people it's like oh we've got something we've learned something new how interesting let's add that to the to the to the list and and let's just be be you know delighted to hear that and now we know more about um about that intersection and how wonderful that is love you know tick you know and and keep going and move move forward so so moving moving sort of again into organizations when we think about building more inclusive organizations for for neurodivergent individuals this is much more than about hiring. Oh, it is. And and you know what, David, this is one of my biggest bugbears. Um, I'm, I've, I've actually got starting to get a bit of a reputation in the neurodiversity field now for um, for being militant, which I find slightly genderized and insulting. But um, but the, the reason is, is because is like, I keep critiquing autism hiring programs um, because I think, you know, we need to it is a lot more than just hiring. <laughs> We're talking about 15 to 20% of the human population having some form of, of, of having at least one neuro minority. Um, and, and so it, it's not about the people that you haven't got in. It's also about the people that you've already got. Um, and there'll be a lot of people who are struggling without the right and appropriate adjustments, who haven't disclosed because they're, they're, they're still fearful of stigma um, and prejudice. And, you know, you can bring as many people in as you like, but if you haven't sorted those things out, they're not going to thrive and they're not going to progress and um you know the the, the the autism hiring thing is starting to feel a bit tokenistic to me it, it was great when it started because it really um you know it, it changed the paradigm so it was a massively massively important thing where we actually stopped doing uh neurodiversity hiring because uh, we felt sorry for people which is where a lot of disability initiatives start. You know, we feel sorry for people. We must you know, give people a chance. And all um, it's, it's sort of, you know, quite hand-wringing um, and, and, and quite patronising, actually. But for, for the, the autism hiring thing really started as a, well, look at the talents that autistic people can bring to, an, to a workplace. And, you know, we're looking for people who can do coding. We're looking for people who can process fine, detailed information at speed. And, and actually, autistic people, that's, their, that's the peak on their spiky profile. That's their specialism a lot of the time, not always in the context of computing. It can be in the context of music or art or language. But that fine, detailed processing is, is um, very typical autistic behavior so, um, and skill. So, so that was a kind of big paradigm shift, and it really changed the way we thought about neurodiversity inclusion but the problem is is we've got stuck there 
And what we should have done next is gone, okay, so so what else can, if, if we stop thinking about jobs as being for people that are jacks of all trades, and we start looking at job design as something where you can allow people to specialise in the thing that they're particularly good at, then we can make all jobs potentially neuro-inclusive and we can be more, you know, we can, we can just provide more employment opportunities like that. And we can look wider than autism. Um, and we can look at we can look at wider disabilities. So so th- the problem is that we got stuck in an industry which is typically very male and white and privileged. So we're not doing autism hiring program in me as many in media. We're not doing it in law. We're not doing it in um, in catering. We're not doing it in construction. We're, we're doing it in tech pr- predominantly, um, which means that we've got some intersectional biases. So people that come into autism hiring programs tend to be white and male. Um, and so, therefore, we're kind of potentially undermining some other forms of DNI by focusing on this one label. And then, you know, my, my real critique for it is imagine if we were doing race inclusion like this. So imagine if we said, right, uh, we need to increase racial diversity in this business. We've heard Chinese people are really good at math. So we're going to go and find some for finance. You know, you would go, whoa, you can't do that. Um, And yet we think we can for disability. And so we've got to tread a really fine line between positive discrimination and positive action on this on this particular um, line. And so my argument really is now that we've proved that autistic people can come into businesses and do a really good job. What was wrong with our hiring processes that meant they weren't coming in in the first place? So So not let's have more autistic people come in. Why were our hiring processes not allowing those people in the first place? And what do we need to change to those hiring processes so that we don't make that mistake again? And where else could we look for where that mistake is being replicated? So it's about human resources still being broadly very dependent on the triad of references, CV and interview for jobs where actually those those particular forms of of, um, selection have very low predictive validity and aren't likely to tell us whether or not someone's going to perform well in role. Um, And then are actually creating adverse impact for certain people like autistic people um, for example so so it's it's about kind of taking a more systemic view rather than a tokenistic view yeah it's like where a number of organizations have changed their approach to only hiring from certain schools yeah because obviously that disadvantaged most of the population frankly um and it, it's the same with this isn't it it's it's yeah. understanding what's wrong with your hiring process that means you're not hiring neurodivergent people in the first absolutely place. so when we when we circumvent the hiring processes and we let them in you, you know by some positive action processes oh look, look turns out they're really good at their job fabulous well done okay so next step is let's let's make those the hiring processes for everybody because if they're if they're actually proving that you can get good people by doing a different hiring process then that tells us our hiring process was wrong not that we need to keep making exceptions um, you know, we, we, we're having black swan events with our hiring processes, aren't we? It's like, oh, we've discovered that interviews is really bad. Oh, let's do work sample testing for this thing. You know, and I mean, I use this myself in my own company. If I'm hiring someone for finance, um, I don't ask them to give me a presentation. I give them a spreadsheet full of holes and ask them to find the holes and tell me what they think that means and, you know, interpret the, uh, the direction of travel in a set of management accounts. And I don't care if they write that to me or speak it to me. That's not that's not the job. The job is can you manipulate data? in financial data can you look for inconsistencies in the reporting of financial data and can you interpret what that data means and make recommendations to management so you know there's 
it, it's about matching the, the selection. Pro- that's the lesson of the, of the autism at work movement. The lesson is we've got to get better at using selection methods that predict performance. I mean, for example, we do want to keep using interviews for some jobs. So if you're if you're I, when I hire coaches and trainers, I do use interviews. I use group based interviews because that's the job. You know, so it's it's not necessarily don't use them. It um, I saw uh, Richard Branson in the news a couple of years ago. He, he'd kind of made some grand sweeping statement to say that because of dyslexia exclusion, he was going to say to Virgin um, that no one was allowed to hire based on CVs anymore at Virgin because dyslexic people are adversely impact, but, uh, impacted by education achievement. And so, you know, CVs were no longer going to be part of the hiring process at Virgin and it was all going to be interviews. And I was just like, oh, you know, now you're good. So now we've designed it for dyslexics, we're not going to um, we're going to keep all the autistics out and, and vice versa. And actually, I think that your team hiring lawyers and finance um, people and potentially also, um, you, know, air, you know, people that are driving the airplanes might want to check their CVs. So, you know, it, it, it's it's all about matching and appropriateness, I think. And, and let's broaden it beyond hiring. You know, let's look at the, the whole employee experience. And, you know, because, as you said, no point hiring neurodivergent people if you then can't keep them because frankly you've got the wrong culture for them you know what yeah. are the most important touch points in the employee journey that, that that should be addressed to better meet neurodivergent individual needs yeah so i mean in the same way that when we are looking for appropriate measures and selection we need to be looking at appropriate measures for for performance management appraisals and and talent um progression in an organization um so again you know you f- still find a lot of appraisals where you can't get moved up to the next level or qualify for a bonus if you haven't done well on team influencing ability, for example. And actually, you've got someone whose job is data analyst. And do they, re- you know, what? How is that relevant to the job? So again, it's it's looking for all of those processes where you've implicitly embedded generalist skills as opposed to specialists, and and going like, how does the specialist move through this organisation? Can they be promoted? Um, I've always found it very, very, very odd. Um, and, and and counterintuitive that the way we select for senior leadership is from middle management, because middle managers require a completely different skill to senior leaders. Middle manager management is about compliance and collaboration and, um, you know, building consensus, whereas senior leadership is much more about disrupting and um, innovating and, and looking for, you know, odd exceptions to the rule. Um, so there's a kind of counterintuitiveness there and, 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 and your neurodivergent thinkers very often get stuck in those management layers because management is very much about processing HR. It's about keeping everybody up to date, making sure people have done their expenses and done their one-to-ones and chased them for this and chased them for that. And and that's, you know, that's a huge cognitive load on things like working memory and processing speed, which lots of neurodivergent thinkers don't have. ADHDers and, and the dyslexics will struggle with that. Um, but they might be brilliant at their jobs and they might be brilliant in a senior leadership role. So, so how how can we how can we look at the structure of how we manage manage talent in a business um, and how can we look at the whole of the employee life cycle um, as opposed to just the hiring point but there is something really important that needs to be said here actually which is about the legal aspects because you know the neurodiversity movement has been 
critiqued for before for being a bit Pollyanna-ish, you know, for, for looking at the glass half full rather than the glass half empty. And and while it's really important to, to create a narrative in which the peaks of a specialist profile are recognised and understood, there are also the troughs in that profile. And those do confer disability protection according to the law in most um, developed economies. And so, you know, we have a legal obligation to these employees. We, it's not just about kind of, oh, la, 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 we've got a new, you know, magical, mystical work fairy who's going to come up with fabulous ideas and then transform our senior leadership. It's also about this person needs assistive technology. They need coaching to help them work out their prioritisation. They need their manager to communicate them in, in, with them in a certain way. And managers are going to need to know what that way is. And the managers might need to have some coaching about that because it's, it's quite different and much more direct than they might be used to, for example. And so we need to put those things in place around those employees and those are legal obligations they're not carrots they're sticks um, and there's actually quite a wealth of case law um, where employers have um, you know broadly made those mistakes and lost in court you know people are losing disability discrimination tribunals by not putting in place reasonable adjustments for uh, autistic ADHD dyslexic dyspraxic employees and that includes employees who didn't have a formal diagnosis when they raised the concern Yes, yes. I'm enjoying the look on your face, podcast listeners. You cannot see this. David displayed a, a look that I could only interpret as surprise. Um, <laughs> but, but yes, if an employer, if an employee suspects that they may have a neuro minority condition and they raise this as an issue um, regarding a performance um, uh, conversation, then the employer is required to take that pretty seriously at that point, because uh, if you end up in court and then it, they, the individual goes out and gets that diagnosis confirmed between, um, you know, the leaving the employment and get going to court, then they still win their cases. So <laughs> a note of caution. And highlights again, you know, the importance of having good managers in any Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you don't want it to get to the point where someone's putting their hand up and, and citing a neurominority condition because they're already at the end of their rope, really. You, you want to be, be into it much more, much earlier than that. Something that we have in, um, in, in my company, in Genius Within, is we have a, a performance management checklist for, uh, for managers, which, you know, if, if, you, if you've got performance as an issue, check. Um, has this person had enough training? Is the role resourced adequately? Are they disabled or potentially neurodivergent? In which case, have you provided reasonable adjustments? And if not, why bloody not? You know, so it's basically before you even start a performance management conversation, going through the checks. Um, and, and I think lots of people, lots of managers or HR people are very concerned about starting those conversations if people haven't disclosed. And that's where a lot of the sense of, of kind of unfairness comes in, I think, for lots of HR people. They feel, you know, this isn't really fair because if I don't know then how was I supposed to to deal with it and I think that's a really a, a valid question but you know the my advice is to make an assumption of positive regard so assume that that's a possibility and check it out well 
before you proceed to performance you know so put the put give give that person an innocent until proven guilty rating you know that it's an innocent performance issue related to a cognitive difficulty until it's proved otherwise um, and only if it's proved otherwise can you consider them in some way um, character deficient you know in terms of their mo- their motivation or their attitude um, and and we have something on our website that we have as a little free questionnaire at genius within which is where you um we get we've we've put the most common um most common barriers for neurodivergent thinkers so there's kind of 50 questions which are the most common things that neurodivergent thinkers of all neurotypes will will come up with and then a solution for each of these but critically what the questionnaire doesn't do is it doesn't try to diagnose you it doesn't start telling you that you may or may not be autistic or you may or may because that's actually quite a risky thing to do for anybody psychologically you just don't want to start you don't want to have those conversations you know HR managers are correct in that in that respect it's it's potentially risky so but it just looks at the behavior and it looks at the functional skill and so if you you know for each question that you say yes to it's got an idea at the end of the um when you've been through it all it'll give you a a report and something that I recommend to people is just sit with the person you're worried about go through that questionnaire just go through it kick out the report and then that's often the report in itself will tell you what that person can do differently which is your list of reasonable adjustments and then you're doing your legal duty because you're making adjustments for that individual and you're talking about how you can do further adjustments Um, and it may just be the way to start the conversation they might come after that. After that, they might go. Actually, do you know what? I've, I've also I've always struggled with um, literacy and, and typo checking my own work. And you know, even when I was doing my A levels at university, I used to have to go over things seven times more than my peers. And and they're like, oh, okay. Have you ever had a dyslexia? Maybe I should have a dyslexia assessment. Yeah, maybe you should. And you know, if you do, there's technology that just does all that. Lovely. Um, and then you can stop working twelve-hour days, and then you can manage your work, and everything will be happy. And as you said. 15 to 20 percent of the population you know that's that's a that's a big number it is we are all managing neurodivergent people in the organizations whether we we know about it or exactly yeah exactly yeah so when you see things like the most common thing that people come to us with are is difficulties with memory slash concentration so you know your your ability to pay attention and concentrate um second and that's 92 percent of our clients 92 neurotype blind doesn't matter what condition they've got what new neuro minority they belong to they it's 92 percent um memory concentration attention um i i group those together because psychologically they are the same thing i'm talking about short-term memory not long-term memory um and then the second most common uh thing at 82 percent is organizational skills uh the third most common thing is time management ability at, at 70 at, sorry organization is 82 time management is 78 um, and then 67% it will be communication and also 67% will be stress management. So those are the common complaints. So if you've got somebody coming with those common complaints, you can pretty much assume that they've got something going on cognitively. And even if it's not a developmental lifelong condition, those are the performance issues that you will also see if someone is um is perimenopausal, if somebody is recovering from cancer treatment, if somebody is uh, has multiple sclerosis, you can have those things. You know, so there's lots of health conditions um, that can create exactly the same cognitive difficulties, which is why I advise people in HR positions to just assume that there's a, a medical 
uh, biological reason for that rather than making the assumption that this person is is um, negligent and uh, and lazy and if you start with the assumption that there could be something going on here you are more likely to turn that around um, you know if the provision of assistive technology uh, support with using prioritization software if that stuff doesn't work then you can go back to plan b which is this person is not right for this role anymore and they could need to be managed out but you know if you if you start with this person is not ma- not right for this role and they need to be managed out and then what you've got is an undisclosed neurodivergent or health condition those are the people that end up in court (laughs) so yeah when we come back in just a moment nancy shares her insights into the benefits of hiring neurodiverse individuals this series of the digital hr leaders podcast is sponsored by iPsychTech. Their CultureScope cloud application is one of the most advanced and scientific approaches to culture and behavioural measurement to drive performance and manage risk throughout organisations. Their diagnostic methods are innovative, simple, accurate and very efficient. What's really unique is that CultureScope applies behavioural data science to your specific organisational key performance metrics, allowing for the diagnosis and recommendations specific actionable insights to make a sustainable difference. Using forward-looking predictive neural intelligence, CultureScope is able to recommend simple solutions to difficult problems and can provide a clear roadmap for culture implementation to maximise your impact and brand value. To find out more, head over to iPsychTech.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Dr. Nancy Doyle, Chief Research Officer at Genius Within and Co-Director at the Centre for Neurodiversity at Work. Now, back to the conversation. Yeah, I know. I know. I know you know, I know we want to talk about the benefits of hiring neurodiverse people as well. Going to come, you know, what, what yeah. are the benefits of hiring, developing and retaining, I'm not going to make it about hiring, hiring, developing and retaining neurodiverse individuals? You know, I mean, there's so many places we could go here. There's one of the business benefits is kind of unleashing that performance, isn't it? You know, it's it's, if you've got all of this undisclosed um, neuro neurodivergence hidden and struggling in day to day performance, then your organisation is not working at the best it can be. Um, You haven't got people working at the level of their potential. If you get people working at the level of their potential, particularly people that come from backgrounds where they're more likely to have been excluded or ostracized in education or previous work, then generally speaking, what we find is increased levels of loyalty. So therefore reduced turnover, reduced absenteeism. And so that's, you know, that's a real uh, strength and value um, of, of just dealing with neurodiversity sensitively, well, systemically, you know, embracing the idea of adjustments, flexibilities, uh, job crafting, specialist roles. If you do that, you're going to attract neurodivergent people. And when when you attract neurodivergent people, you are going to get neurodivergent thinking. Now, there's a, an odd schism, which is that neuro, neurodivergent thinkers are overrepresented, overrepresented in entrepreneurs um, and leadership 
compared to um, sort of corporate management. So um, a, a study by Julie Logan about 10 years ago at the Cass Business School um, at City University found that only 1% of corporate managers were dyslexic compared to 20% of entrepreneurs in the UK and 35% of entrepreneurs in the USA. So you know, we're always talking about the the war for creative talent and innovative talent. Well, this is where it is. You know, your neurodivergent thinkers bring that. Uh, they bring that innovation and that creativity usually. Um, and and the, the 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 thing that we can do as employers is is not have them get, um, you know, death by bureaucracy at, at levels in the organisation that don't suit them, and find ways to unleash that thinking and that 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 in that that kind of innovative idea and there's been enough studies out there that show that the more cognitively diverse teams are the more successful they are that's right yeah yeah and and for exactly some of the reasons you said there creativity innovation yeah now the other thing to remember is that you know whenever you have a diverse team you've got diverse values and diverse principles and diverse styles so you have to work quite hard on making sure that they don't um rub up against each other the wrong way you know i think at the at the sharp end of neurodiversity inclusion the organizations that i work with who are doing this well where they are starting to come adrift now is that they it's not like they've got one token autistic and therefore everyone can accommodate that person. They've got three autistics and two ADHDers and the ADHDers are annoying the autistics because they're inconsistent and they keep breaking all the rules and the autistics are annoying the um, ADHDers because they keep turning all the lights down um, because they don't like the sensory overwhelm. And then there's an autistic person that's got PDA who doesn't like consistency and finds that upsetting. Um, And then then the other autistic people are saying to them, well, I don't think you've got autism because that's not how we are autistic I think you've got ADHD and then they start falling out so so <laughs> you've got to you've got to handle that cognitive diversity in, in a in a in a strong and proactive way you need to set the rules of engagement and you need to create structures for handling um, conflict miscommunication misunderstandings um, you need to expect them they are coming so rather than kind of assuming everyone will rub along quite nicely together and it will all be fine what are you going to do when you've got two people with protected conditions and the adjustment they need is in conflict that's a conundrum, you know? that's a conundrum. Yeah. Totally. Well, you've got your autistic person who wants low lights because they're overwhelmed from the stimulation. And then you've got someone with a visual impairment or someone with ADHD who needs bright lights because they like the stimulation. So what what do you I mean, that's just a very simple example. That's like the simplest example I could give you of that. It's got a simple suggestion solution. You know, you need individualized lighting. Um, but <laughs> but um that is the kind of thing that's going to happen. The more diversity we bring into our organisations, the more those diversities start to um, start to conflict with each other. You know, what do you do? Like dyslexic, the, the most uh, the e- easiest to read tech font for dyslexics is um, sans serif fonts, but for visual impairments, it's Times New Roman, which is curly and weird so how you know it's 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 not about going oh I've ticked the box I've done it all my fonts are are sans serif and then you get someone with a visual impairment walking into the office and you go oh now I have to change it all again so rather than rather than sticking to what that's the other reason for having more than one neurotype you know you need to but a huge business benefit of this which we don't talk about enough is is the is the commercial aspect so the world is neurodiverse if you are design, if you only have neurotypical employees, you are designing your services and products for neurotypical 
um, customers. Um, and so therefore you're missing um, a huge target market potentially. Um, the discretionary spend of adults with cognitive disabilities alone in the USA is 1.1 billion a year. Wow. Um, and uh, around 73% of people with cognitive disabilities report um, finding it difficult to access banking systems and, 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 and difficulty to um, complete financial transactions online. So, you know, if you can't design, you're not, without that inclusion internally, you're not going to be able to design services, products and, and, and structures that are going to meet the needs of your customers. And that's, I think, a really important carrot to this movement and something that the, the, the organisations that I work with that are doing this well have completely embraced that. That's what they're doing and that's why they're doing it. And they get that that very commercial um, value add of, of this process. It's not just about being nice and it's nice to have different people and it can be a bit creative sometimes. It's also you've got to represent the communities you serve um, as a business. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's get back to the conversation with Nancy, where she shares an example of the work Microsoft is doing to address the needs of neurodivergent employees in the workplace. Can you share a couple of examples maybe of, of organisations who are tackling neurodiversity inclusion well? So I work with um, Microsoft and Microsoft, I think, are doing a fantastic, I mean, Microsoft are doing a fantastic job of disability per se. You know, it's not, they, they have embraced neuro minorities within the broad umbrella of disability and they're doing an amazing job. Their international chief accessibility officer is a, um, is a deaf woman. Their head of accessibility in the UK is an autistic man. You know, they, they've got representation in their disability inclusion um, work streams and as a result they're doing amazing things so you know I don't know if your if your listeners know this but in in PowerPoint now you have got a button where anybody presenting a PowerPoint over Zoom it will automatically do closed captioning for you so it's it's on the um, it's on the present your slides tab you can automatically set up closed captioning if you're presenting your slides and it's it, your microphone is next to powerpoint it will start doing closed captioning for you which is just phenomenal so they're starting to build in things as standard that have been really i mean that's a useful function for sensory impairment but also for cognitive um, uh, differences as well lots of adhders like to see the words at the same time as hearing because it it gives us a more um, a, a more rich sensory environment it holds our attention longer because we're seeing and listening rather than just listening um it's uh you know so, so those are but but they're not just doing it in terms of representation and the services they provide they're also you know in, in they they've they kind of were one of the early adopters of the autism hiring movement but they've totally ad- 
also started to shift that to not just autism and to look at that they're one of the things that we're working with them on at the moment for example is making their apprenticeship and internship programs neuroinclusive so actually doing that thing that I said at the beginning so instead of saying right so we're going to have an internship and apprenticeship program and then we're going to have a few autistic ones as well so rather than having that as a separate thing they're going how do we make our internship and um, apprenticeship programs uh, neuroinclusive but not just neuroinclusive intersectionally neuroinclusive and that is about challenging where people hire from and, and saying well you know have you looked at populations of people who are long-term unemployed who never went to university have you know because uh, genius within work with around a thousand individuals a year who are long-term unemployed and we've got lots of autistic people in that group who haven't been to university doesn't mean that they won't turn out to be the best coder that you've ever met or the best um, legal document challenger or critiquer that you've ever met they, they absolutely can do those things so so that what they've done is really broaden their horizons um, around inclusive hiring as inclusive hiring as the mission rather than hiring is hiring and then we do an inclusion project um, and so that switch that they've made I think is um, is where everybody's going to end up going and I, I it's it's wonderful actually they're doing a wonderful job um, and then the other organization that we work with a lot who are doing a good job of this are some of the health education England bodies around the UK so they are responsible for employing um early career physicians, paramedics, uh, dentists. And so it's people who have, have finished their education, but they've still got professional training to go. Um, and so they don't become a fully qualified doctor until they finish those those training um, courses and so where their people are coming unstuck is they've been the kind of student who has always been able to over rehearse in order to do well so they've been able to pass all of those very challenging medical based and dentistry exams because they've simply spent 50 hours revising as opposed to some of their peers that might have spent 10, 15. But now all of a sudden they're doing a 50, 60 hour week and still trying to pass exams. So their over rehearsal strategies are no longer available to them and they've, they're hitting what I would call the neurodiverse ceiling, which is where, you know, they all of a sudden that those troughs in their profile have become too much of a, of a weight and they can't get anywhere near the peaks of their profile because the, 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 the troughs have, um, have tripped them up. Um, and so they've got a lot of kind of adult disclosure happening in that, in that area where people are suddenly going, oh my goodness, you know, why, why is everyone else able to do this and not me? Um, and so what they're doing, which I really like, is um, what I would call flipping the pyramid. So so in a lot of a lot of neurodiversity, neurominority kind of uh, systems, what happens first is diagnosis. So in schools and in a lot of businesses, if you say, oh, I think I might be dyslexic or I think I might have ADHD, the first thing that happens is you have to have an assessment and nothing will change until you've had that assessment. Now, in the education system, that can take two years. It can involve three different professionals and it can involve, involve three or four thousand pounds. In, in a workplace, it's usually a bit less than that. It's usually less than a thousand pounds, but it still takes a couple of months. Um, and in that time, no help is provided. Um, and so individuals are, are waiting for some sort of help or assistance. They're not getting it because they've got to go through this gatekeeping process. It's also usually the most expensive thing. So <laughs> what, what's very silly about this pyramid is you, the thing you do at the beginning is the most expensive thing and it doesn't provide the help. 
So after you've been through the assessment, you might get told, well, right, well, you know, you need some ear defending headphones because you can't concentrate in busy environments and um, you need read aloud software to help you process large volumes of written text. Um, you know, that software costs less than, in fact, it's built into Microsoft now, read aloud software. You don't even need to buy it separately. Um, so, you know, you might end up with adjustments that are free or a couple of hundred quid um, that are immediately available to you that you can get within a matter of days, but you've had to wait several months and pay a thousand pounds to get to that process. And so what the what the health education and then there's other organizations that are doing this but health education some of the health education england's are doing a really good job what they're doing is they've they've worked with us to flip that pyramid so the first thing they do now is our questionnaire um and we've got a version <clears throat> we've got a version of the questionnaire that we designed specifically for them so we went through all of the different options for how you deal with straightforward day-to-day -day problems and made it specific to their environment we worked with their practice supervisors to make sure everything we were recommending was things people could implement themselves from a stationary budget without needing any money, without needing any more specialists, without needing any more advice. They, it's just something they can you know, implement with a stationary budget today, having had a little conversation with their practice supervisor or that or someone, you know, um, and then so, so that's then the very finest point. And then we go, does that work? And if that doesn't work, then the next point of contact is um, a review with an occupational psychologist who will go, oh, I can see why that's not working for you. Tweak it a bit like this. Have you tried that? Have you tried this? Or if you're doing background colours on your screen to reduce the glare. Oh, you're not. OK, add that. Um, you know, so you can do a little bit of tweaking and again, a very, very straightforward cost. But then the other thing that that's, that psychologist can do on the phone is triage. So if that person is then going, right, no, this is going to be more in depth, you're going to need um, way more assistive technology than that and you're going to need training to use it then that psychologist can signpost straight to that service or if that psychologist thinks well actually this person is going to need a lot of adjustments in exams as well as um, day-to-day practice so it's probably best for them to have an adjust uh, an assessment actually um, then they can signpost to that so then the last thing that happens is that big fat cost rather than the first thing that happens and what we found in doing that is that we take 20% of people out of a cost out of out of needing any extra costs for their um for their adjustments I, th I feel foolish now asking you this question after hearing all your expertise and passion about this topic but but why did you set up the the Centre for Neurodiversity at work? And 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 also maybe as part of that answer, maybe you can share about some of the current research that you're yeah. you're doing and funding. Oh, we've got lovely research jobs going on. Okay, so so one of the reasons I set the centre up is a kind of lifelong frustration between the gap uh, that exists between science and practice. I've I've found that frustrating in my entire career, um, but the gap goes both ways. So if you go to academic conferences, you'll find lots of professors bemoaning the fact that practitioners don't. Um, don't listen to the research that they're doing you know it's like well we've been doing research on performance related pay for 50 years and it doesn't motivate people but people are still using it. it's very very sad and you'll get lots of kind of grumbling about that um but my critique back to professors and academics has always been well research things that people are interested in you know if i see one more taxonomy of leadership traits i shall just you know explode I'm bored of it do things like what 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 can you research that will actually make a difference to practitioners where is that where is that where is the connection where 
the research is listening to real world everyday problems that are What's happening. What's the problem you're trying to solve with your yes. research? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if, if the problem you're trying to solve with your research is one that you've got from reading other people's research, then it may have absolutely no real world relevance. So so the idea with the Centre for Neurodiversity um, Research at Work is that we it's an alliance between the practitioners um, at Genius Within and the researchers at Birkbeck. So we can feed problems that we're having into um into the centre and then the, the centre will uh, commission and, and organise research that will uh, that will do that. But it's also about putting voices of, it's also about separating the researched and the researcher, you know. So um, the centre is, is majority neuro-minority, if that makes any sense at all. So there are more neuro-minority researchers um, on the board, in the leadership, and in the PhD pipeline, um, than there are neurotypicals. So it's also about kind of you know not having this kind of you know we will we will try to understand how it is for autistic people. It's more like autistic people will research things that autistic people will find interesting in the workplace and, and important. Um, so we've got um, so in that vein, we've got a couple of really good projects on at the moment. I've just submitted a paper to a journal which is a a survey of um, nearly 600 autistic people across the whole world looking at intersectional exclusion. So that kind of critique I made at the beginning about autism at work programs being predominantly white and male, um, I've got data for that. <laughs> I didn't just say that. That's, that's you know, that's data I've collected. Um, and um, because I want to make that point and I want to understand the extent to which that point is, is, is a real issue for people across the world. And, you know, the um, so, yeah, so our, our, that's that's a big project we've got on, on at the moment is understanding the different experiences of inclusion, exclusion, authenticity, being, being able to be your authentic self in the workplace, which is a kind of common buzzword. You know, how true is that for autistic people? And is it more or less true from with, for autistic people that have other um, identity demographics that might create stigma and, and exclusion, such as race, uh, LGBTQIA2S, and um, and gender and and transgender. You know, so th there's th so that's what we're looking at. And yes, you know, we found particularly autistic people with visible additional differences are are struggling more than those with invisible. So socioeconomic status didn't seem to make a difference um, to the extent that, that, that there were differences between black and white participants. Um, trans and non-binary people experienced more um, ostracism in the workplace compared to women who again expl experienced more ostracism in the workplace compared to men so there's this kind of this um this graph with you know the averages for each kind of getting getting worse or better whichever way you're looking at it so that's that's one project and we want to use that to really create a call to action for people who are involved in these sort of autism hiring programs to start doing what microsoft are doing and to start going right you know this isn't about um hand picking uh, white male privileged technologists from the best universities, and just because they're autistic, calling that calling it inclusion. Let's let's use this to start doing really inclusive hiring. So so that's a kind of connection where we've seen a problem in practice. We want to find out the extent to which it's true. Um, in, in an objective, systematic way, we've done that. Now that we know the extent to which it's true, we're going to create 
um, first an academic paper, but then some lay summaries and some practice guidance for, for organisations, for people, for your listeners. So we'll take it through the academic process so that we can be, you know, so that we can vouch for the credibility of the research. And then we'll bring it through into um, advice and guidance um, for people who are actually going to have to deliver these changes. Um, and another piece of work that we're doing is a, a rapid evidence review of what we know from race and gender inclusion that we can apply to the neurodiversity movement. So, for example, in race and gender inclusion, we know that um, token gestures are not welcome. So, you know, when you get your your one Asian woman on the board to be in charge of looking at all of the policies and deciding whether they're sexist and racist and your one Asian woman on the board happens to be a finance director, doesn't really know much about HR. <laughs> it's tokenistic. It's not really, it's not her job. Um, it, it's not, it's not a fair thing to ask of her. It's additional to her extra work. So we've, we've learned that that's not cool in race and gender inclusion, but we have not learned that that is not cool in disability and neurodiversity inclusion. That sort of stuff is still happening. So um, another project is to, is to systematically go through all that research that we've got on race and gender, which is much older, much more mature, much more developed and credible and say where are the points of principle that we could apply to neurodiversity that would save us some time so that we're not playing catch up and we're not repeating the same mistakes that other forms of DNI inclusion um, have made and we can kind of short circuit some of those processes. Right I mean that, that, that that's I mean some really important questions there that, that you know regarding the, the neuro neurodiverse experience of work that you're obviously trying to answer and I like the way that it's not just academic sake it's actually to make it practical and put it in the hands of mm. practitioners so they can make a difference with it um, absolutely so you gave a little bit of a sort of synopsis there around how bridging the academic uh, academic practitioner gap can help organizations uh, how can organizations best keep up to date with the research that's being done um, well, I really like it when organisations work with us on the research. You know, we can't do the research without organisations. So work with us on it, you know, um, offer to be one of the people that we that we, you, you know, send out our surveys, uh, join our mailing list, <laughs> um, be be aware of what we're doing and how we're doing it and, and join in. So, you know, these these things that we're doing at the moment are quite preliminary. The next stage is to look at interventions and to look at the success of interventions. So, for example, that flipping the pyramid thing that they're doing with um, Health Education England, I want to quantify that. You know, I want to work with an organisation who will who will take that approach in one of their departments or geographical locations and leave the other geographical location just as it is, and then track what happens in that organisation and go: do we do we notice a difference in um, uh, in in turnover uh, performance? You know, what objective measures can we look at to see whether that's whether that's actually making the difference to performance that we think it will make? Um, and do we have proxy measures that we can survey at serious points, such as um, organizational engagement um, and you know perceptions of of your employer so can we measure that stuff can we see what difference it makes and, and can we kind of set up a natural I'm a big fan of quasi-experimental research I don't randomized control trials don't really work for our industry they're too they're too clinical and, and sterile you have to actually have to get into into an organization and go right what happened let's look at what's actually happening so so I would say yeah the best way for an organization to keep up to date is to join us well, there we are, listeners. There's the invitation, and we will give Nancy's details at, at the end, so you can get in touch if you're interested. Um, and now for the question, Nancy, we've fasc fascinating conversation. But unfortunately, we've reached the last question. 
Um, Ian, the producer, will be cutting us off at any minute. No, I'm, I'm joking, of course, listeners, don't worry. Now, now for the question that we're asking everyone on the series, you know, how does behavioural science help to improve the workplace? Oh, that's a very large question. I'm I'm hoping that everything I've just said answers that question. Well, I think I think honest. it partially does, yeah. it, it, or yeah. more than partially, in fact. But maybe if you could provide a summary then for... Yeah, well, I, I think it's about kind of challenging and, and checking that what we know isn't a reflection of what we've always known and a confirmation bias versus kind of challenging ourselves to think in new ways and and actually being you know the thing that behavioral scientists like occupational psychologists and management scientists do is we use evidence to 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 justify what we're saying you know we don't just have opinions that what's that wonderful phrase uh, the plural of anecdote is not data that's you know, a good phrase it is a good phrase. The pl- I, someone said it, it's not mine. Um, you can't credit it to me. But the plural of anecdote is not data. And understanding how to avoid biases in the data that you collect so that you're collecting good quality data. I mean, we have this all the time with biased data. You know, have you heard about the the, um, the, the hiring AIs that, 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 that taught themselves to be sexist? Do you know what I mean? This is what happens when data scientists don't work with behavioral scientists. That's exactly the kind of thing that happens. So if you've got people with hard engineering skills that have never learned critical thinking or social the way, the way behavior is socially constructed, you will end up with hiring AIs that teach themselves to be sexist. Um, but when you bring behavior into science and you bring social um, social and psychosocial norms and cultural influences into the understanding of data you avoid things like that and and you yeah just get smarter about it that's really interesting Nancy I mean we work with a lot of organizations who have people analytics teams and many of those teams have that, that blend as you said between data scientists and behavioral scientists and industrial io psychs as well and and to do exactly what you said just provide that check mm. and balance I guess yeah and and I think it's you know yeah the, the the critical thinking is important I mean as an as an IO psych myself you know we've we've all been trained in how to construct a decent questionnaire you know I was working with a, an architectural firm who wanted to understand the sensory inputs for for neurodivergent thinkers and they were planning on surveying 20 people and I said okay so 20 people like is that three three dyslexics four dyspraxics you know that because they're all going to have different sensory profiles okay um and where are you going to get them from i don't know (laughs) you know so just being able to challenge the the, the risk was they would take the the results of 20 autistics and then start implementing design policies across the whole world that suited autistics that hadn't taken into account people with visual impairment people with adhd you know so it's it's we're annoying behavioral science scientists we're annoying we'll tell you where you're going wrong um and that's annoying sometimes, but we will stop you, therefore, from making really big mistakes like creating an entire hiring AI that teaches itself to be sexist because it's learned that women don't get promoted. So it started ignoring CVs that have the word women in them at any point. Um, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll spot that error. Very uh, 
a very good call for behavioural science, I think, there to, to, to conclude yes. us, Nancy. Thank you so much for being a, a, a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Absolutely fascinating uh, listening to you. And I learned a hell of a lot um, over the last sort of 50 minutes or so. Can, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media and find out more about your work? Sure. So um, I'm an avid Twitterer um, at Nancy Doyle Psych on Twitter. I like Twitter. I know it gets a bad press, but I like it. I don't like Facebook. Don't look for me there. Um, I'm not a fan of LinkedIn. It's a bit postury for me, but I am on LinkedIn. I do respond to LinkedIn um, and I do like Instagram and I'm on I'm Nancy Doyle Psych at Instagram as well. Um, and, you know, by going on there, you'll also be able to find links to the Birkbeck Centre for Neurodiversity Research at Work, which has a mailing list, which you can subscribe to um, and uh, you'll also find details of genius within and where genius within can how genius within can be contracted brilliant well I, I'm sure many of our listeners you know particularly those working in large companies in HR will, will, will be in touch following listening to this so Nancy thank you very much for your time today um, and uh, yeah and, and take care thank you for tuning in to this episode of the digital HR leaders podcast I hope you enjoyed it if you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. Tune in next week for episode two of series 20, where I'll be joined by Nigel Gunnell, Senior Lecturer and Director of Research for the Institute of Management at Goldsmiths, University of London. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.